My name is Brad Klein. I'm the host of the TurfNet Renovation Report. And I uh, want to appreciate our uh, sponsors, Golf Preservations, The Andersons, and Capillary Bunkers. This is uh, an episode I've been waiting a long time to, to have with a uh, golf course architect and course manager in many ways, uh, Nathan Kreis. Nathan, you're a member of the American Society of Golf Course Architects. Does that mean you uh, walk around in the South with that uh, Donald Ross jacket on? Not in the summertime. It's a little, little warm in the summertime. Uh, Nathan, we've talked many times over the, the last few years. Uh, you, we'll get to some of your outside interests, like that novel and your favorite character. But um, you've been very embedded in the golf industry. And um, as a, I guess you went up through the PGM program. Is that right? And you've developed the company, Watermark Golf. Uh, companies tell us a little bit about your background that got you to the point where you feel confident designing golf courses as i say it's a long story but we'll make it short um i actually grew up in indiana and had no one in my family who played golf and to this day i sometimes wonder how i stumbled across the at&t poem at that time it was still the bing crosby poem at pebble beach one Sunday afternoon, just sitting there flipping through channels. I think it was probably raining outside and uh, because usually we were outside playing. And <clears throat> I saw this beautiful piece of property along the ocean, the golf course. And, you know, they kept showing seals playing around on the beach. And, and I thought, uh, wow, I'm, I want to be part of that. I don't mm -hmm. know how, but I somehow want to be part of that. And so the next week, you know, and of course this was back in the late, 70s early 80s so you know we were lucky to have a couple of hours of golf on a saturday and sunday uh, let alone golf channel yeah, usually so, four holes the last four holes yeah wasn't it? yeah well, I, I can remember times that go to a playoff and like well sorry you know we got to get to 60 minutes um so you know you just you read the paper the next day and find out who won um but so anyway i'm the next weekend i'm looking through the newspaper and I see golf is, is on TV again and it's a different golf course. And it, that blew my young mind because, you know, at that time, you know, I'm playing basketball and baseball, you know, just playing all these different sports as a kid and they're all the same and all the fields are the same, but something about golf courses and how each one was different and unique really drew me into it. Mm -hmm. And before yeah. I knew it, my parents had some land uh, there at the house. And so before I knew it, I had some old clubs, a couple of old, you know, like a seven iron and a wedge, I think, from a neighbor who didn't play anymore and a paper sack full of old golf balls. And I started smacking them around out in the, out in the back. And, um, by age 10 or 11, I've mowed out fairways and greens and tees enough to make three holes. And, uh, that's where I taught myself how to play reading Jack Nicholas's golf, my way book. Uh, you know, literally right there at my parents' house. So uh, that's how I got into it. And from that point, I kind of decided I wanted to design golf courses, but I had no idea how to go about doing it. And stumbled across some, a friend of mine, my parent, my mother, had some information about the professional golf management program at Mississippi State. I went down there for a visit, fell in love with it, and uh, decided that it would be good to, because there was no program to learn how to be a golf course architect. And my father was a general contractor, so I'd been around heavy construction all my life. You know, he used to take me as a kid and put me up on a 
bulldozer and let me shove dirt around. And so, um, you know, I needed to learn the, the business of golf, you know, how a golf course operates, why things are done this way. And I think that experience was invaluable and it definitely has an impact still to this day on the way that, you know, we do design and renovation work, um, with regards to economic sustainability of the, of the golf course. When you're designing a golf course, you've got, you've had a lot of experience. I gather on, on the management side as well. You've run a golf course or three. Is that right? Yeah. Um, for, well, when I first got out of college, I worked for a, a company run by a retired golf course superintendent and we designed golf courses. We also managed a couple. And so I was able to use my experience from the management side to kind of help out on that side of the company. Although my, my heart was always in the design side of it. That's really where I felt my, my talents were best utilized, but then I uh, found myself running a golf course for 18 years, uh, uh, up in, uh, upscale municipality, uh, or upscale municipal golf course, public access golf course that we later, uh, completely renovated a few years ago. So, um, yeah, I've always had my hands in different parts of the industry to some extent. And I really do think, um, because especially when you're working with golf course superintendents, it's, it's important to have that experience and that background and to understand why it is that there are things that need to be done on a golf course. And it's not just because the you know members may think the superintendent's just trying to make it easy on him or herself. Uh, but in the reality is there are things that have to be done. And sometimes it helps when the golf course architect is, has been down that road before and can explain to the golf committee or the owner of the municipality why these things need to be done and, and why they're good investments. From an operational standpoint, what is it that you understand about what animates a golf course that, say, the average golfer might not see? And how does that, how does that uh, influence your design, too? Well, you know, we've always, when we first started out, especially here in Mississippi, we had uh, you know, kind of that boom Back in the nineties, when people were, seems like we were building a golf course in every corner, we also had casinos that started to open up across Mississippi. And, and a lot of those, you know, built golf courses and a lot, they brought, brought in names like Fazio and Nicholas to, to come build these high end resort style golf courses. But that also spurred development with private owners and municipalities and, and others who saw this going on and wanted to, wanted to jump into the mix. And so, you know, we were able to utilize our knowledge of operations to build golf courses literally for an entire 18 holes for less than $2 million that was functional, aesthetically appealing, and, and above all, fun to play. You know, you can't, if you have somebody with a budget who had of six, $700,000 a year for maintenance, you can't go build uh, 200,000 square feet of high flash space bunkers and, and expect the golf course to look anything like you designed it, you know, a year or two down the road. So always very mindful of that. Uh, and I think that's one reason why typically the first call I get from a client is from a superintendent, um, sometimes general managers, you know, people who want to do a little better feel for what's involved. Um, and I think it's important that you know, I'm able to kind of connect on different levels with people because I've been there, done that. Yeah, I, I often get the feeling that uh, most owners or yeah, uh, course project founders, they're designing for a, an elite 
small percentage of the actual market. Many of those people they're designing for championship golfers don't even pay green fees. Uh, your average golfer should be playing from what 6,200 yards and hits the ball 220, maybe. Um, yeah. You know, it's a it's not it's not what we see on TV. It's not that billboard. No, no. I mean, you can't you can't design a golf course for the one week out of the year that the tour pros are playing. I mean, it's just not you know it's not feasible. Uh, it'd be like building an interstate for rush hour traffic. You know, that's that's you just have to deal with the, the traffic during rush hour, and the rest of the time it's fine. But uh, to that end, in fact, I'll go back the refuge that just reopened last year. Um, you know, we added, we ended up with six sets of tees. They actually have five on the scorecard, but we were able to provide enough flexibility that it can play from over 7,000 yards from the back and all the way down to a little more than 4,000, uh, from the front. So there's as much or as little golf as, as you want to play. And again, it's designed for the average golfer who's playing from those that middle set of tees. But from the forward set, it's still enjoyable. And from the back set, it's still a challenge. Uh, tell us a little bit more about this project, The Refuge. It's in uh, Flowood, Mississippi, which is actually a suburb of Jackson, Mississippi. And uh, as mm -hmm. I understand it, it's, it's adjoining the grounds of the Jackson International Airport. There was an existing golf course you kind of I don't know if retrofitted the right word is or renovated it. And you did it for an incredible, really modest budget. Tell us what you did and what you got out of it and why. Sure. Well, from the uh, first tee to the Jackson International Airport is probably a driver and a hybrid um, across the highway. Uh, so it is right there at the airport. Uh, Flowood is a very upscale um, suburb of Jackson on the east side of Jackson, uh, right there at the airport, as we mentioned, and about, oh wow, five or six years ago now, they, they came to us and said that a developer uh, was interested in purchasing property immediately adjacent to the golf course. He was going to invest in a $50 million uh, hotel and conference center. And uh, ended up being a Sheraton, 10-story hotel, beautiful. I was actually there a couple of weeks ago. Um, just kind of looking around, checking things out. And, um, it's gorgeous. You know, it's a really nice, you know, a big, huge walk-in resort style pool with a lazy river and multiple re restaurants. On it. So really nothing like that in that part of Mississippi that's not either connected to a casino or down on the Gulf Coast. So they came to us and they said, you know, we would like to renovate the golf course. Do you think you could renovate it for $2 million? And we said, well, you know, having been involved with it for so long from the management and operations side, I knew I knew what needed to be done. You know, primarily greens. We needed to redo the tees, bunkers, uh, upgrade some irrigation. They wanted to do cart paths, um, which was a big chunk of the budget, actually. Sure. And um, the, so we started kind of digging into it. And one of the things that <clears throat> I said we had to do, because the golf course was originally designed by Roy Case. And I don't know if you know Roy. Uh, uh, but, uh, he's an Englishman, isn't he? Yes, Roy's originally from England, lives yeah. in uh, Florida now, and I, I think he's still still working. Uh, I haven't talked to Roy in I don't know ten, fifteen years, but so uh, he he did the original design, and it was nine holes out, nine holes back, which works great at St Andrews, but not so much for a public golf course in Jackson, Mississippi, as it turns out. So one of the things that we wanted to do 
was create returning nines. And so without getting into all the details, we made the 18th hole, the ninth hole. We built a new 18th hole, flipped a couple of other holes around, built three new holes in the process. And so now you can play five, nine or 18 and come back to the clubhouse each time. Uh, and the clubhouse is now the pro shop is in the first floor of the hotel. So you really have this resort experience when you walk mm -hmm. onto the property. The golf course used to be, it had this weird combination where it was, it was too short, but too tight. So it's kind of this weird no man's land where for the average high handicapper, they were losing too many balls. For the better player, they couldn't hit driver. I mean, they had water hazards were in the landing areas on, on a lot of holes. We had to fix that. But, um, so, you know, we did a lot of clearing underbrush work, uh, removed a lot of invasive tree species and dead trees. And, other, and it really just, it doesn't even look like the same golf course. I, I get emails, you know, every week from people who say they haven't been there since we, since we did the renovation. It doesn't look like the same golf course. And, and it doesn't. It, it really was um, a phenomenal effort by the entire team. But yeah, that total project. Uh, the actual contractor's construction cost was about $1.9 million for that renovation. So how do you do that? Is that with detailed planning or is that with minimal earth movement or simplified construction of tees, greens, and so on? I mean, how do you, you know, USGA versus, I don't know, sand push-up or something? How do you do that? Well, we, we actually did uh, USGA greens because the, the oh. original greens were USGA greens. So we built three new greens. Uh, that were USGA. Um, the other greens, we went in and reestablished the old uh, green edges, and some of them had, you know, by, on an average, had reduced by 20% over 20 years. So we picked up mm -hmm. a lot of pin placements that had been lost to time, um, converted the old Tiff Dwarf to Tiff Eagle. And then uh, there was, a, adjacent to the property, there's a, a regional stormwater retention lake that had to be built. And so... Uh, the city had to build this this lake, so they allowed me to sort of, you know, give it some shape to make it look, we didn't want to just look like a big lagoon or a big circle. And so we had to do this, and the dirt had to go somewhere anyway. So we were able to get some of the dirt to use from there to build some of the new features we wanted to build because it was cheaper for them to just haul it, you know, a few hundred yards away to different spots than to haul it off site. Uh, so we were able to, to save on, on the dirt work in that regard, um, the, the clearing and underbrush work was actually done by the city uh, with our staff on site daily, uh, kind of helping direct that. So, uh, you know, and, and this was back before the pandemic. So with the way costs are now, that same work today, if you had to put the whole thing out to bid uh, and, and do every bit of it with a contractor, you know, you're probably looking at at least double, double the amount that we spent. Um, let's just take a break here. Uh, Brad Klein here for Renovation Report. Our guest uh, today is Nathan Grace, golf course architects, and uh, we're grateful to the uh, sponsors from Golf Preservations, the Andersons, and Capillary Bunker. Introducing Genesis RX, a line of comprehensive fertility and soil amendment solutions specifically designed for airification, construction, renovation, sodding, sprigging, and seeding. These blends represent the most comprehensive fertilizers the Andersons have ever produced. 
offering single product solutions designed to simplify fertility and save time in application. To learn more, visit andersonsplantnutrient.com slash turf. From fairway and greens drainage to full-scale renovation work, Golf Preservations can handle your project with ease and give you the peace of mind of knowing the professionals are caring for your valuable golf course assets. Since 2005, Golf Preservations has meticulously installed over 500 miles of drainage pipe on more than 300 golf courses nationwide, always keeping disruption of play to a minimum. Visit golfpreservations.com or call 606 499 2732 to speak with us about your next drainage or renovation project. The capillary bunker system keeps bunker moisture at optimal levels to eliminate washouts, soil contamination, plugged ball lies, and other bunker maintenance and playability problems. The patented capillary bunker system not only rapidly drains rain from storms, but also moves moisture back up to the bunker sand through capillary action as needed during drier weather. Capillary bunkers last longer, average a three-year payback, and provide better, more consistent player experiences, all with a 10-year performance guarantee. For more information, visit capillarybunkers.com. We're back with the uh, TurfNet Renovation Report. Brad Klein here hosting. And uh, I'm honored to have a guest here who I've been um, trying to catch on the podcast for quite some time, Nathan Crace. Um, Nathan, I want to just uh, acknowledge our guests, who, uh, our hosts who make it uh, possible, of the Gulf Preservations, the Andersons, and Capillary Bunkers. Uh, we're recording this on the Sunday right after the Valspar PGA uh, Tour. Uh, and... Uh, Fella, uh, Davis Riley lost in a playoff to Sam Burns. I gather you have a pretty intimate uh, knowledge of Davis Riley's game. You watched him, is that right? Tell us a little bit about, and tell us what you see when you see young amateurs like that hit the ball the way they do. What does it make you think? Well, I I don't know if it's an intimate knowledge, but I, this is my twelfth. See, two thousand. Yeah, this is my twelfth season as a volunteer golf coach at a kids' school. So we've got three children. Our last, our youngest is now a sophomore in high school. So I don't know if I'm retiring from that after he graduates or, or I might just go ahead and get the 15 years in. Um, but, uh, you know, I have had the, the good fortune to see a lot of really good junior golfers, including Davis, uh, playing tournaments. And, you know, strangely, there are a lot of very good junior golfers that come from the state of Mississippi, which has a relatively low participation rate in golf compared to other states. Um, a lot of that is credited to the Mississippi Junior Golf Association, a very strong program that cultivates a junior program here. Uh, VJ Trollio and Tim Yelberton with their teaching facility and at Old Waverly in West Point, um, you know, they run hundreds of kids through that program every year and really just produce a stable of, uh, of quality golfers, junior golfers from across the state. Um, and it's funny because, you know, going back to my background in management, when I was 
doing a co-op in college. I was an assistant pro at Castle Woods Country Club in Brandon, Mississippi, where VJ Trolio was one of our cart boys. And I laughed because I used to have to go get on to him about hitting balls on the clock. And now he gets paid to watch other people hit golf balls. Um, so I always, I like the kid with him when I see him, but he, he's done a great job up there with, with those kids. And, uh, just, I mean, it, it's almost like they have a factory for uh, great junior golfers there. So yeah, Davis, you know, I saw that yesterday where he was in the lead and, and had the lead going into sun and for went to the University of Alabama, but, uh, would love to have seen him, uh, pull that off. He grew up at Hattiesburg Country Club, which is a course that we redid you know, 20 years ago. Uh, I was actually just down there last week. We're talking about adding some, some tour tees on a few holes. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's really fun to watch, watching these young golfers. I, and for our school, it's a small school. We've had a, a D1, a girl come out and go to D1. We've had a handful of, uh, junior golf, uh, junior college golfers have come out of there and done really well. So, you know, it's a lot of fun to see. It's fun to see kids getting involved at a young age. You've got uh, an unusually extensive portfolio on the, the university college campus side. As I see it, you've got work that you've done at Mississippi State, Old Miss, University of Southern Mississippi, Delta State University, and the Maxwell Air Force Base, which I guess you can count as a campus. Um, how did you get involved in that side of things, and how does that work for you? Um, pretty you know, it's uh, – <laughs> I, I, I don't – Really know. I can try to think back. I think when, when, uh, and again, golf is a small uh, community in Mississippi and Louisiana. And so, you know, everybody knows everybody and that's a little hyperbole, but it's not far from the truth. Um, and actually at, at Ole Miss, and this is kind of a funny story. I told it actually at the grand opening when we reopened the golf course uh, years ago, but, um, Ernest Ross, was the pro there at the time. And Ernest used to be the pro at, he was the golf coach, excuse me, at Ole Miss at the time, but he used to be the uh, pro at the Country Club of Jackson. And when I was in college, way back in the 90s, I interviewed with him for a co-op for the summer, but I didn't have junior golf camp experience, and he has a huge junior golf camp. So I didn't get the job. I ended up going to Castlewoods, which is where I met Mike Shannon, who at the time is now at Sea Island, but at the time was the pro at uh, Old Waverly. So I got the job working at Old Waverly. Uh, from there, the superintendent said, hey, I know a, a guy who's a retired superintendent who's starting a golf course design company in Jackson, which is what I wanted to do. So I went to meet with him, started my own company, and then ended up redoing Old Mrs. Golf Course. So you know, I told Ernest if he had hired me, then I probably would still be a golf pro somewhere. You know, instead of, it's weird. It's kind of that, they talk about the butterfly effect when a little thing happens here and, and it grows. Uh, so Ernest knew me. And when they were looking for a, a golf course architect, we had redone the tees there years before. And he reached out and asked me to come interview. Mm-hmm. And so interviewed, got the job. And that's how I got the old Miss project. Uh, of course, I'm a Mississippi State graduate. So, you know, we like to kid each other about that all the time. But, um, you know, my Mississippi State friends, you know, some of them would, would rib me about it and say, well, why don't you do something to Mississippi State? I said, well, all you have to do is ask. And uh, then we ended up doing something to Mississippi State. We built, we redid their uh, practice facility and built something there for the team. Went and built a uh, team facility for 
the University of Southern Mississippi at Hattiesburg Country Club. And so a lot of these, what happens is you build these relationships and it's not, you know, I'm sure it's like this for every golf course architect. It's like that for a lot of, of businesses is that you build these relationships and you cultivate these friendships with people. And then down the road, somebody says, Hey, who did such and such? You know, and then you get a phone call, you go meet with them and you find out that, you know, you're thinking along the same lines and the next thing you know, you're doing a project there. So, uh, now that's, each one begets the next one. Yeah, it sounds like there's a little bit more crossover uh, at the neighboring state. If you work for Auburn, you'd never get hired by Alabama and vice versa. But uh, maybe possibly, or less- it could be that I'm just such a nice guy that they can't resist. So right. you know, maybe it's- <laughs> yeah. Um, tell us that when you're working in an environment like that, um, is there a generic? structure to the soils to the composition of the golf courses that force you to make a little bit of an adjustment when you go elsewhere or is it is golf golf all over uh, yeah golf yeah i mean i have a handful of you know key principles um and i don't know that i could even sit down and write them out i mean i just it's one of those things it's kind of like art you know when you see it and so I, i have these key principles from years of doing it and as a kid just reading everything golf related that i could and studying every golf course I could see on TV and had the opportunity to go play as a kid uh, and, and through college. And, um, you know, there's no boilerplate cookie cutter way to kind of punch, punch things out from project to project because each property is so different. The one, the one key factor that, um, that I'm proud of is very detailed drawings, specifications, planning, you know, crossing all the T's, dotting all the I's. And uh, that enables us to, you know, not have change orders, for example, uh, that drive up the cost and enables us to kind of know what we're getting into uh, beforehand so that there there are no surprises, um, you know, to the greatest extent possible. And and again, I think that goes back, especially with these government-funded public money projects. You know, they don't have an open checkbook where you can just go change something and and they could have, you know, I, I've yet to have that uh, golf course owner come to me and say, here's an open checkbook, go build something great. Um, well, maybe one of these days, but hasn't happened yet. In your design over the last two decades, say, are you seeing any evolution in how golf architecture takes into consideration environmental issues? Are you seeing more heat, more need for storage water, more stormwater management, hurricanes, whatever, anything like that that affects oh, yeah. your design? Tell us a little bit about how that works in your planning. Yeah, well, especially here in the southeast, you know, where we have literally six feet of rain a year. You know, that's always stormwater is always a consideration, um, being able to hold that water and release it slowly over time, make a golf course as playable as possible, as quickly as possible after a rain event, that type of thing. So um, I've always been a big advocate of what I call naturalized areas. I don't, you know, a lot of people call them native grasses, but not a lot of really native turf grasses to the United States other than buffalo grass. But, and, um, so, you know, you have these naturalized areas where you can reduce your carbon footprint and your amount of man hours and, and inputs, <laughs> things like that. Plus it looks great. And, you know, if you do it the right way and it's not in play too much, I like those different colors and textures. And we, just uh that's the first phase of a project we just finished up in gulf breeze florida at tiger point where the golf course was literally just a big sea of 150 acres of green bermuda grass 
and we went in and turned about 30 plus acres um, into naturalized areas. And it's really starting to come in this year and looks great, especially blowing in those coastal breezes down there. And, uh, you know, the, the goal, the owner, he kind of laughs, but he's serious about it. He, he wants it to be a wee bit of Scotland in the Florida panhandle. So, mm-hmm. you know, as much as you can do that with houses lining both sides of most holes, um, you know, we're, we're trying to, to at least minimize the footprint. And, uh, you know, for every acre of Bermuda grass you can take out and, and out of your daily maintenance, you, know, you save about a thousand dollars a year. So 30 acres, that's $30,000 that can be spent on a piece of equipment or a couple of folks in the summer to come help out or maybe a, an additional staff member. So all those little things. And again, you know, when, when I talk about sustainability, it's not just the environmental impact. It's also the financial sustainability of that golf course to be able to stay there and continue to operate and be functional and, you know, serve the community that it, that it's in instead of having it redeveloped into a bunch of big box stores or something like that. So um, that's always something we're always very conscious of. And when you do renovation uh, plans, are you able to kind of calculate what the altered maintenance regimen will be in terms of man hours? Or is that something you work out with the superintendent? How does that work? Yeah, I've got a a really good agronomist on staff, uh, Al Osteen, who is a retired golf course superintendent. He ran a, a PGA Tour event for 17 years at Annandale Golf Club in Madison, Mississippi, just north of, of uh, Jackson. Also, he also has a lot of experience in construction. So Al and I are uh, good sounding boards for each other. Um, you know, we, we like to kind of challenge each other intellectually about different things. And, and sometimes I'll throw something out that's maybe a little crazy from the design side. And he'll, and he'll say, well, why don't we maybe dial that back a little bit? Um, you know, so it's good to have somebody that, that uh, can kind of be your conscience and, and again, just to bounce ideas off of. Uh, one of the characters who's uh, floating around in your life is a, an elusive uh, noir character, uh, you can explain that, named Vincent Dino. Tell us about Vincent Dino. Well, that was a book that um, I actually had the idea for way back in 2013. Um, and I had been writing for some eight years a golf column <clears throat> and just sort, sort of, uh, you know, how it is. You have a deadline looming and it's kind of hard to sometimes mm-hmm. find the time to, uh, to get it done. I don't have to tell you about that. And I always wanted to write fiction. And I had this idea and uh, kind of centered around the, at that time, the sequester. And I thought, well, what if, if, uh, the sequester caused some big cuts at the Department of Defense. And one of those cuts was a secretive program tucked away somewhere that uh, nobody knew about and they couldn't tell anybody about it because if they did, it'd be all over the news. And uh, so it just kind of quietly went away and got shot, got shut down. And in the process, you know, released America's darkest secret in its biggest city. And so uh, the entire book is based in, New York, and it jumps back and forth between 1955 and 2013. Again, it does have kind of that noir feel to it, a field detective stories, which, you know, I love all the uh, old Humphrey Bogart movies, and, and that's a, you know, kind of that feel to it. Um, there's a little bit of golf mentioned in the book, but uh, no real 
you know, it's not a golf book by any stretch of the imagination and uh, kind of quickly turns into uh, a lot of government conspiracy. Um, some of the things almost ripped from today's headlines, scarily enough, and some, uh, some things that I thought I was making up as far as, you know, technology that, you know, turn around now and is actually happening in, in some places, which is a little scary. Uh, but it's a fun ride. I think is, is you were kind enough to write a blurb for me, but, um, yeah, I like the fact that you get to the end and it kind of leaves you hanging. Well, I actually uh, read it and uh, as a former New York city cap, uh, taxi driver, I could relate to that and who grew up in New York. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. I, I had it going on a number of dimensions. I thought it was great. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, fiction is hard to do fiction. It's hard to get out of your own world to uh, create these it, characters i can't write fiction but uh, well just... it it's it's hard to write and to keep it moving is is the thing and and that was one of the things that i struggled with and so when the pandemic came around and i hadn't published it yet i told my wife you know if i don't get this done get it published and i die from covid i'll never forgive myself you know sort of tongue-in-cheek but at the time you know, early on in the pandemic you really didn't know you know so right um I did finish it up in 2020 and we got it published and it's on Amazon and at vincentpino.com. But I've kind of shifted gears now because I've always been a big fan of uh, the uh, spaghetti westerns and uh, I've been watching a lot of Clint Eastwood movies here lately again. And so now I'm working on a seven chapter uh, series of short stories kind of in the vein of the old Sergio Leone spaghetti westerns that has a kind of a Quentin Tarantino twist to it. So I'll, uh, I'll get you a draft of that when I get a little further along. This is uh, Larry McMurtry meets uh, the Matrix, huh? <laughs> it's, well, I don't know if it's quite, quite that crazy, but it's, um, you know, again, I, I like, I told, I think I told somebody one time, my, uh, I'm like a dog who sees too many squirrels. I just have, if I was probably undiagnosed. Uh, when I was a kid, ADD or ADHD or, you know, one of those. Um, but I just, you know, it's, it's too little time and too many things to, to do. Well, you know, most of us, I think, were uh, either misdiagnosed or they missed us. And I'm glad they missed us because <laughs> uh, now we're here we are in our right uh, middle old age, whatever, and uh, gunning and busy as ever. Now, uh, when you set out to do or finish, uh, Vincent Dino, nobody had any idea what was going to happen with golf and the pandemic. Lo and behold, golf is booming. Uh, play is up 20% the last two years. I've never seen so much renovation work in my life, and I've been covering the industry for 40 years now. Uh, it's astonishing. Everybody I know is busy. Uh, you know, and the, obviously there are lots of small jobs that are time-consuming, but it's nice to be working, I would imagine. Oh, wait, I'm busier now. I was just telling somebody the other day, busier now than I've been since the late 90s, easily. Um, again, a lot of renovation work, although I hope to be announcing an actual new golf course um, by the summer, which is exciting because we haven't done one of those in a long time. Yeah. Uh, but that said, I'm a little, you know, I hope, I don't want people's expectations to get, you know, we need to be spending the time and, and effort in renovation and we don't need to go overbuild again, like we did back in the nineties. So, um, it, it's, uh, 
it's a lot of renovation work. I think I have 11 projects just in Mississippi and Louisiana. And then um, Florida, South Carolina, possible one in Texas. We just signed a commission in uh, Tennessee, you know, so there's a lot of work being done. And, and the great thing is almost all of these projects are at public access golf courses, either purely public, um, municipally owned or, or, you know, or uh, some version of semi-private where the public's allowed to get out there and play. And, um, you know, and, and I'm not knocking private clubs because we do have private clients, but it's exciting to me because I grew up on a county parks golf course that, um, you know, the, I never set foot on a country club until I was at my first co-op at uh, Mississippi State. So uh, it's exciting for me to help help public golf courses and, and help them attract more people to the game because, you know, that helps the longevity of the, of the industry. Well, you know, it's a funny thing about golf. Uh, for all the uh, highlight magazines and websites and so on, 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 on three or four golf courses, which we could all name, in fact, 75% of all rounds played in the United States are in the public sector, and 75% of all golf courses are in the public sector. So uh, that's where people really experience the game. And my sense is a lot of the renovation work that's being done, uh, it's not always the, the sexy kind of restoration stuff that you find in various uh, websites and social media outlets and you know, golfclubatlas.com, but it's more like fixing stuff that's broken. And, no, and and making absolutely. sure that and making sure that the golf course doesn't uh, decay and it can just keep functioning. So it's I, it's I do a stuff. lot. Yeah, I do a lot of bunker renovation uh, lately. The last couple of years, a lot of bunker renovation, a lot of uh, tee renovation, expanding tees, and uh, to again accommodate this increase in play that we have. Um, you know, there's just there's a lot going on in that field and you know you have to be able to adapt uh a few years ago 10 years ago we, all of a sudden we had this big surge in um uh, short game and practice facilities when the economy took a turn and people couldn't or wouldn't go spend four or five hours playing golf but they still wanted to go spend an hour work on the game and so we had a lot of clubs who were afraid of losing members. And so we would go in and do these really nice practice facilities uh, to help attract members and, and retain members. And, you know, public golf courses are in some way the, the farm lead for uh, private clubs because people get a taste of golf and they develop their skill. And as they get older and then they get out of school or, or maybe they're already out of school and they have enough money, they want to go join a, a club. But I know plenty of, of guys who, are members at private clubs and they still love to go play public golf courses and take a buddy's trip or, or something like that. And I'm seeing more women uh, getting into the game and doing things like that with the, the golf trips and stuff. And that's exciting. I mean, that's, that's exciting. It's an exciting time to be in this business. Yeah. Well, Nathan Grace, it's a pleasure to speak with you. I look forward to getting down there to Jackson. I've been to Jackson. I've flown into that airport, but before the refuge was redone. So I'll get back down there. Uh, one of these days, and we'll play yep. golf together. And uh, so, our, our guest, Nathan Crace, a golf course architect from Mississippi, and um, want to thank our sponsors, Golf Preservations, the Andersons and Capillary Bunkers, and for Turfnet Renovation Report. This is Brad Fox.